In the upcoming months, we have not one, but two solar eclipses that are set to sweep across the continental United States. An annular eclipse on October 14th and a total solar eclipse on April 8, 2024. The eclipse in April will be the second total eclipse to cross the country in the past decade and the last until 2044. It will also serve as the final exclamation point on a month-long research expedition across the country aimed at collecting data on airborne microplastics aboard an airship as it travels from California to Texas. Joining us is one of the leaders of the expedition, Don Hartzell, to discuss the journey and what the group on board hopes to achieve. Don, welcome to the Weather Geeks podcast. It's a great pleasure to be here, Marshall. Thank you for inviting me, and uh, and let's geek it. Yeah, we we like to geek out on on the podcast, and I can tell you're ready to go. So, I ask every Weather Geeks guest, "How'd you become a Weather Geek?" But in this case, "How'd you become a Solar Eclipse Geek?" Well, all right, I, I have to describe a moment in my life that was. Basically, an homage to chasing the sun, chasing the moon, and watching that moment where basically the alignment, that alignment that is so critically important to see, and we are not talking about a partial alignment, we're talking about totality. And in that, I was in Argentina on July the 2nd. 2019 as part of a 19 hot air balloon expedition and our goal, our mission and our uh, objective was to all be in the air simultaneously to watch the total solar eclipse of the sun and the moon in Merlot, Argentina. Now, there's that moment where the sun is blocked by the moon and immediately the weather on the ground is affected. It changes. We went from a very, very, well, calm moment to suddenly catastrophic wind gusts that are just regaling and knocking all the balloons out of their positions. We're watching the 19 balloons as they are trying to inflate and get into the air, and suddenly pilots are abandoning their baskets. People are watching their balloons that are slightly inflated start bouncing into each other, bashing into each other. Baskets of balloons that were partially filled in terms of uh, uh, inflation were being drug over other balloons. And so all of a sudden, this panic, and it was pandemonium. And as I am holding on to the rope to my balloon, which this rope goes to the very, very top of this hot air balloon that was being inflated, all of a sudden that rope lifts me up off of the ground and I'm about three feet in the wow. ground holding on to a rope. I'm watching my pilot wow. abandon the basket and I'm going I'm about to let go because I am not going to hold on to a you know runaway balloon that has no control over it whatsoever. And, and as soon as it lifted me up, it threw me back to the ground. And I'm sitting here holding on to it, and I'm trying to keep it steady. And there's this man who comes running across the field to help me. He grabs the rope with me, and this man and I, we wrestle the 
uh, balloon to a standstill. And in the meanwhile, six of the uh, 13 balloons, they're able to launch, but every one of them is damaged, either fire damaged or uh, torn a little bit in terms of their envelopes. But they managed to get off the ground. 13 of us are still on the ground. Well, the man that has grabbed the rope with me, he and I are holding down the balloon. And as quickly as the weather and the wind had blown up and had created chaos, it dissipated. And so suddenly we were in the midst of a calm again. And so at that moment, I actually got to meet the man who helped me. His name was Bob Fowler. And it turned out that Bob has about 20 some odd years with airships. And I happened to be organizing an airship race around the world. And so here we are, we meeting in a field in Argentina. Our first handshake is during the total solar eclipse of the sun and the moon. And we are finding out that between us, we don't have just two or three uh, degrees of separation of people. We know hundreds of people that we have never met before in our lives. And there we are having that first shake of hands under a total solar eclipse. So Bob Fowler is now my managing director for logistics, safety, and airship operations for our World Sky Race, our race of airships around the world. And so that's how we put things together. Uh, just just an, I think that takes the cake is one of the most amazing first stories on the podcast since we've been doing the podcast. Let me give you a little bit of Don's background. Don is the commissioner and managing director of the World Air League, a member of the Explorers Club, uh, which I believe I think I've spoken at in D.C., and a, an enthusiastic advocate for eco-conscious initiatives involving promoting sustainability in various ways. Uh, he actually has a Juris Doctor or JD from University of Houston Law Center as well. I, I, there's so much I want to geek out on. I mean, uh, just you're just a fascinating guest. But I want to start with some basics here because we have viewers and listeners of the podcast that may not be familiar with what an airship is. So can you talk to us about what an airship is? All right. First of all, I, I will point out the ones that almost everyone uh, gravitates towards. That's the Goodyear blimp. And the Goodyear blimp sure. is an airship. And uh, the way an airship is defined is by it's being lifted by air or rather, you know, helium or hydrogen lighter than air. And uh, the wonderful thing about an airship is by utilizing the physics of buoyancy, it spends no energy to get in the air whatsoever. It is already, by yeah. definition, in the air. And so if we are wanting to look to the future, a pathway where we have green aviation, uh, all we have to do is look to the past and look at what airships were doing in the 1920s and 1930s and take those engineering lessons, those very, very sophisticated uh, uh, capabilities and apply them to the future. And so this is an well, instance. Don, Don, can I stop you really before you move on? Because I want to kind of because I, I want to know why things kind of we had that sort of glory days or era of airships and then kind of they kind of fizzled a little bit. What, what were the issues that didn't that didn't sustain that? Well, let, let, that, that, that right there is something that we've overcome. 
And where we are today is near what they weren't doing in the 20s and the 30s. The 20s and the 30s, there was a gigantic clash of titans as to what aviation technology we would be using, airplane versus airship. Airships in the 1920s and 1930s, by the time the Hindenburg crash occurred, that fiery crash that we all know and we all you know, acknowledge, uh, that crash resulted in redefining the entire industry. But it did so in a way that most people do not realize at all as being the cause that airships quit competing. It's like most people, when they look at the film footage of, uh, oh, the humanity of it all, uh, they do not realize that 93 people on board that airship, 61 of them had breakfast the next day. And so the crash was fiery. It was captured and it's indelibly in our culture. But the reality was that For that airship to land, it required a small army, 250 big, burly people to hold that balloon down from floating away once it landed. It took another 250 to launch it, whereas at that time, an airplane, you needed a pilot. They didn't need a control tower back then. You didn't need uh, anyone more than just somebody to get into the plane and turn on the engine. And so singularly, airships lost to the airplane because of the compact motors that were built that resulted in being able to move people everywhere, but not labor intensive. And airships were labor intensive. And that's been resolved today and is no longer the impediment that it had been. And so we are now at that point where the technology, the marriage of our needing to adapt to the future and the technology of the past is inevitably the path that we need to examine today in order to get rid of that gas-guzzling airplane. That gas-guzzling equation of aviation today is no longer the driving need that we have to address. So it is time for us to look at what airships could do and revitalize them. And I'll say this. I mean, it's like the technology of the 1930s and the 1920s. We talk about how good they were, but uh, and it's amazing what they achieved, but If you think about the Hindenburg, the Graf Zeppelin, the airships of those days, they were made out of materials that were available those days. Those materials, the only thing that was commercially available that would allow to hold either helium or hold hydrogen inside that that balloon of the quantities that we're talking about was essentially cow stomachs and cow intestines. And so the Hindenburg was constructed. Wait, out. wait, wait. cow? Yes. Cow intestines? Is that what you said? Yes. Wow. In, I, I didn't, in cow I didn't stomachs. Wow. And, and so the Hindenburg was constructed out of 30,000 cow stomachs. Wow. So now, I just learned something new there. Okay. Now, this is where I get to ask the question. Have we improved since then? Sure, we have. Okay. Absolutely. And so, I mean, it doesn't take a lot to make improvements in an area where we know will be effective. And so 
What we're doing right now is we're organizing a race. We've raised $5 million for that race, and we are going to use this as an incubating challenge for the entire world. That challenge is make inventors invent, investors invest, and adventurers compete. And we will have a competition of airships. We're going to call it, the we call it the World Sky Race. And that competition will completely eliminate fossil fuel from the energy equation. We will be taking the greenest form of aviation, which is lighter than air already, and make it even greener. Really fascinating conversation already. I knew it would be. And, you know, you mentioned buoyancy. Weather geeks uh, certainly uh, know buoyancy well because it really is the sort of cornerstone or, of how clouds form. You know, when, when I teach about basic meteorology in my classes at the University of Georgia, you know, we learn about buoyancy and lapse rates and changes. You know, and I often use uh, things like what you've described because, you know, we have to get those volumes of air, those parcels of air to be lighter than the environmental air that they're rising into. And then they can cool, reach the point at which the condensation occur and we get clouds. So when you talk about buoyancy, that really is, you know, music to the ears of weather geese. I, I want to know a little bit more about the race. Now, you mentioned this race as you talked about. Can you give us the deep? I mean, because when I think of a race, I think of a starting point and an ending point and whoever gets there the first wins. So can you give us the details on this, where this race will start and where right. it will end? And now, where, you know, there's so many fun facets to this conversation, I have to tell you. And, and it's like what we're planning right now is a series of races, much like the Tour de France. And so yes. we will have and we start at the Greenwich Prime Meridian from the atomic clock where all time on Earth is synchronized. That is our starting point for our race. What we will do is we will have a two to three hour race around London. We're going to get to use the H9 helicopter path right down the Thames. And uh, the National uh, uh, Association for Transportation for uh, Great Britain, they've told us that since we are starting at the Greenwich, which is not an airfield, that we're going to have to have an extraordinary permit for our airships to take off at a non-airfield. So they're going to charge us 50 pounds each for the airships that are in our race around London. And so what we're going to do is we're going to race around London for two to three hours, and it's going to be over their iconic uh, landscape, uh, past London Bridge, uh, rather Tower Bridge. London Bridge happens to be in Arizona, but uh, Tower Bridge It'll go past the Millennium Eye, Houses of Parliament, Big Ben, uh, the O2 Dome. And in that moment, we, as we race around London, we're going to be showing to the entire world, not just London itself, these airships and their grand gladiator uh, roles. And that is proving who has the best technology. And then we're going to take this flying circus and we are going to fly all of them to Berlin. And so two weeks later, we will have a race in Berlin around Berlin. And so what we have is a series of 17 races 
where our flying circus continually moves eastward to uh, places like Rome. We've secured the landing rights over the pyramids. We get to fly over the Taj Mahal. We get to do the Twin Towers of Malaysia, Haolong Bay. And it's to be determined where and which of the Chinas we go to. We will let, uh, ultimately, that resolve itself. Then it's to Kyoto and Tokyo in Japan. And then from there, we take the Bering Straits to Anchorage. And from Anchorage, it's down to San Francisco. And from San Francisco, it's here to Texas, where I live. And uh, then it's to the Statue of Liberty and the Portuguese Navy. I'm meeting with Admiral Maia, commander of the Portuguese fleet, and we told him that we're organizing the historic first circumnavigation of the world by airships with an airship race. And he simply said circumnavigation. And the Portuguese are so proud of the word circumnavigation. When you look at all their explorations that they have achieved and what they have bequeathed to the world, when we said the word circumnavigation, we said the right word because the next thing he said was, how can we help? And with that, we have two frigates that have been donated, contributed to be our safety net for crossing the Atlantic Ocean. And that's by the Portuguese Navy. And so that means Lisbon's on our race route. But we finished this race route by landing at Versailles Palace. And at Versailles Palace, that is where the McGuffier brothers launched the very first hot air balloon. So mankind's first steps into the heavens, our very, very first baby step, that very first historic step, that very first step that separated us from this planet was at Versailles Palace. So we get to say it ends where it began. When we come back, as fascinating as this, then I want to bring in a little science because there's some, too. We're going to take a break and we'll come back in a moment. Sure. Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with Don Hartzell, and we're talking about a fascinating set of topics. I, I, there's more than one that just has already got me geeking out, and I can't wait to continue the conversation. So you've already heard about the, um, the airship race around the world, essentially, and I look forward to that. How did the idea of studying microplastics from an airship come about? Because I know that's a big sort of aspect of what you're doing as well. Well, what we're doing right now is we're organizing the Solar Eclipse Expedition. We're going to see S-E-E. And uh, with that, this is an expedition that has, throughout its organization, our outfitting of it, the DNA of the Explorers Club. And the Explorers Club, its science expeditions and our flag is basically the first to the North Pole, 
after all, the Explorers Club was founded in 1904 to fund the first expedition to the North Pole. And so our members include first to the North Pole, first to the South Pole, first to top of Mount Everest, deepest in all seven of the oceans, first to circumnavigate the balloon or the world in a balloon, uh, the first to have a solar plane go around the uh, world, the first to the moon. Those are what the science expeditions of the Explorers Club have achieved. And so an expedition needs a science purpose. And right now, there's an alarming element that is growing, that is the unseen, uh, the un, uh, the consequence, the unintended consequence. That's what I'm trying to say. The unintended consequence of the life that we've been living. And that is microplastics. We're finding them everywhere in alarming places. We're finding baggies at the bottom of the Marianas Trench. We're finding plastic in the Arctic. We're finding plastic in Mount Everest, but it's also in the air we breathe. And so we decided that as a part of our sea expedition, our science side of it, is that we will be able to do something that is completely groundbreaking in terms of developing a database and adding it to what we already know, which is essential. We need to know what we're dealing with. We need to be able to quantify it in order for us to do something about it, to either make changes to the lifestyles that we're living or to regulate it and, uh, and as a result, control it. But it's but we can't go about that without knowledge of what it really is and how extensive it is. And so our goal right now is part of that fact finding mission. And so the wonderful thing about an airship, it's ideal for taking airborne samples at mid atmospheric levels. And so if you put, let's say, a swatch on an airplane it's going to fly through, it's going to take off, and it's going to land, and you're not going to necessarily know what altitude or where you actually collected your plastics on it. So planes are not the correct way to do it. Drones are, have a possibility. But the nice thing about an airship, it's manned, and you can have multi-zonal samplings and what we're going to end up doing is we will do infrared study. We'll do electron uh, microscopic uh, studies. We will do aging studies, efflorescence uh, studies of the microplastics. So not only will we have an instance, an idea of distribution, we'll know quantity, we'll know age, we'll know altitudes. And so this is a massive database that we're about to uh, develop, more than 2,000 miles. It's going to include coastal lands. It's going to include highways. It's going to include basically industrial centers. It's going to include urban areas. It's going to include prairies, the plains, the deserts, riverbeds. And so we will have, as a result of measuring microplastics over about a 2,000-mile swath, a much, much better understanding as to what the world is dealing with. And so this is something not just simply for geeks like us, but it's ultimately for kids to appreciate what the world is like and they can help be a part of the solution. So our goal is to use this as an activation moment, 
as a moment to bring science and airships together in a fashion that makes ultimately the introduction of uh, this as a technology and as a uh, race around the world far more fascinating. So, I mean, we're, we're biting off a big amount, but at the same time, I think we're going to end up uh, being able to be a herald for change. Now, I started off the introduction talking about eclipses, and you've added an eclipse at the end in some way. So before you talk about how the eclipse is connected to your expedition, if you will, let's geek out a little bit on the terminology, because I mentioned an annular eclipse on October 14th and a total solar eclipse coming in 2024. Now, we actually had a big eclipse viewing um, classroom at the University of Georgia in our football stadium for the the last one. We weren't at total uh, darkness where we were in Athens, Georgia, but it was still a great teaching moment for us at the university that we're still very proud of. Tell our listeners and viewers the difference between an annular eclipse and a total solar eclipse and then how an eclipse is related to your expedition. Well, an annular eclipse is basically a partial eclipse. And you end up uh, not having the complete alignment of the moon blocking the sun, creating just that simple, not that simple, that glorious halo that a total solar eclipse has. And it's, and it's kind of cosmically wonderful that our moon and our sun, they're distances, their uh, mass, their circumferences is such that we, when we have a total solar eclipse, which completely blocks the sun and all of its radiation, that the moon is precisely the right size to leave a halo around it. So eclipses, you know, they're, they're amazing moments, total eclipses, that is, in that they are religious they are personal. They are science. Oh, they are exclamation I'm going to go ahead. Keep keep going. Okay. And so we, in as a result of getting that opportunity to have a total eclipse, we're planning on using that as our exclamation point for the sea expedition. It's like the sea is going to be traveling from California to Texas. It's going to rendezvous wherever we have the best weather forecast along the path of totality on April the 8th, 2024. The path of totality of the uh, solar eclipse is from northern Mexico all the way up to Niagara Falls if we're just staying within the United States. And so we're going to be relying on our good friends, our meteorologists, on uh, being able to provide for us their best uh, prognostications, their best forecast on where we can launch our airship on April the 8th, such that we have a cloudless or nearly cloudless sky to observe the total solar eclipse from. So we're going to be working hand in glove with the most important member of our expedition, that being the meteorologist. Well, that's certainly one of the reasons we wanted to have you on Weather Geeks, because that's such a critical component of, of observing this. And when we come back, I'm going to ask uh, our guests the big question. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I am Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Don Hartzell and such a fascinating guest. I, I have to give kudos to the Weather Geeks team, our production team, Josh Vexler and various folks that have made uh, Don's availability possible here. Uh, I, Weather Geeks is such a fascinating podcast, Don. We've been doing it for a long time as a TV show on the Weather Channel and now as a podcast and as a streaming. And so I have to say that you've just been one of the more fascinating guests that we've had on the show. Uh, the Explorers Club. You, I mean, you mentioned just the 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 accomplishments of your members in the Explorers Club. The big question that I wanted to ask you is, in the grand scheme of things, and where we are as a society at the convergence of technology, of environmental crisis, and so forth. What do you see as the role of expeditions and exploration going forward, given the the world that we are living in now? Right now, what has pushed the boundaries of the world that we live in is that sense of exploration, needing to put together answers, observe in the field, and basically appreciate the world in which we are living. And one of the interesting things about the evolution of the Explorers Club is we're all environmentalists. We are all environmentalists. This is the planet that we're living on. And in order for us to be able to chart a path for the future, for the generations yet to come, we need to appreciate and understand the balance of our environment, which is so critical to our species, so critical to uh, the way we live on this planet. And so exploration is always going to be about pathfinding. It's always going to be about looking for solutions and also observing the world in which we're living in to basically learn from it. And so exploration, it can be at, you know, in the smallest particles possible to, you know, the expanded uh, universe that's out there. And so we're that species that has that curiosity that, uh, that does make a difference. And, you know, and it's like when I say we make a difference, I mean, we make a difference on our environment. We make a difference on what ultimately this solar system is going to be like in terms of a cultural network of humans living throughout it. And so we have some, uh, some paths that, uh, that we have to look forward to. And, and, and I have to say this with optimism, that we will solve these problems because that is what we are also doing. Just, just uh, first of all, thank you for your, what you're doing. And just 
again, remind us when the airship race is going to occur so that people can be looking out for it. And also, are there places online or social media where we can follow and track the progress? Well, uh, what we're looking for is the sea expedition is also going to be the exhibition for the World Sky Race. It's going to be the call to action. And what we are then waiting for is the marriage of electric battery, hydrogen propulsion, uh, solar power or a hybrid, and putting those propulsion systems into airships and having them race. And so it is our expectation that our race around the world is two years, maybe three, but two years away. It is our goal that before this decade is out, we will present to the world a solution, a working solution, a demonstrated airship that is vital, capable, and able, such that by the end of this decade, our second race of airships will be North Pole to South Pole. And with that, we will have established firmly the uh, versatility, the viability, and the capabilities of airships. And one of the interesting things about airships, let's go back to the word about buoyancy. Uh, cold, dense air, that's perfect air for airships. Uh, you know, it's like you have the greatest amount of buoyancy when you have cold, dense air. And so these yeah. airships, if we're looking at um, basically taking advantage of the resources that are abundant in those far-flung areas like the Arctic, uh, like uh, Canada, like Siberia, like the rainforest, airships can get there and do so in a fashion that is not disruptive. Because currently, when we have expanded commerce anywhere, that means you dredge a harbor, you create a runway, you build another thousand miles of roads, you uh, have to build bridges, you have railways. And the wonderful thing about an airship is it is able to connect every place on the planet without that destructive right-of-way construction that is called a highway. Instead of listening, you know, getting rid of that last mile of road, we can get rid of that last thousand miles of roads. And so the purpose of airships go beyond just simply having green aviation. It's also about expanding and connecting the world as well without the destruction of additional major infrastructure. Just, just so fascinating. Now, where, where can we find you on social media or on the web? All right. You can uh, go and you know, check out worldskyrace.com, world like in the globe, air, sky, or sky like the air, race like a fierce competition. That's worldskyrace.com. And we have some pretty interesting people associated with us. And I have to simply say this project has the DNA of the Explorers Club. And yeah, it does. I actually wanted to mention that because you have princes and all kinds of people, scientists, explorers. And so just a fascinating uh, expedition. I invite our listeners and viewers to go out and, and watch that. For those of you that are watching on the Weather Channel streaming app, I hope you 
uh, are listening on our podcast and our typical outlets, but you can now watch us in streaming. And so um, apologize for that little lighting snafu we had earlier in the show. But, you know, we'll, you know, we, we just keep talking because we like to geek out no matter what technology happens. Shout out to Catherine Sullivan. She's been on the Weather Geeks before and she is oh, a member yeah. of our advisory sure. board. No, Catherine Sullivan's a close colleague and friend of mine. I was on her advisory board when she was the head of NOAA. And a really good friend and colleague of mine and certainly a friend of the Weather Geeks podcast. I will be sure to pass along that I spoke to you. So thank you, Don, so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Marshall, thank you. I highly appreciate it. And let's do this again. Uh, Absolutely. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from University of Georgia. And we'll see you next time on Weather Geeks.